electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. What will September hold for stocks after a choppy last four weeks? We debate that with the Investment Committee today. Joining me for the hour, Shannon Sakosha, Amy Raskin, with me on set here, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal. Let's check the markets. Uh, August coming to a close. We do have stocks uh, modestly higher at this moment, but they've been volatile today, uh, as they have throughout the month. Dow down 3.5% for the month. S&P the same amount. NASDAQ's been down 4 We're watching yields. 312 is the tick up today on the 10-year. I've got a gun lock tweet of late last night that I wanted to focus on. Farmer Jim, I'm going to turn to you first. He says, and I quote, in the U.S. Treasury market, 210 inverted, 35 basis points, 530 inverted once again, five basis points right now. These are reliable signals of economic trouble. Risk manage accordingly. So how do we risk manage accordingly in the environment that we're in heading into a new month? What's, what makes the most sense to you? I, I think the problem here is how do you define the environment we're in? Because I still think that we're sketchy. dealing with sketchy. And, and in the post-pandemic world, I would also say we're in uncharted territory, Scott. I don't like those, those uh, yield curve figures that you said. I don't like them, okay? Um, you know I'm invested. You know that my investment is based on fundamentals that I see. But I can't ignore, and I'm not ignoring, uh, those yield curve signals. I think, though, the answer to this actually relies on something that you tweeted last night. And it was elegant and succinct. You said, this market, you have two choices. You either are fighting the Fed or you don't believe the Fed. Right. That, I, that's what you tweeted. That's right. I think that's very good, actually. And I think I, I, I know you brought up Jeffrey Gunlack. If you don't mind, I'd like to bring up Mohammed in the interview, Mohammed el in the interview you had yesterday, uh, because he was clearly in the latter camp of don't believe the Fed. And there's an inherent statement in that that you think they're lying. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I think that the data supports a soft landing more than people are giving credence to. And if it happens, then the Fed won't have to do what it says it's going to do. Not, and by the way, this would not be the first pivot under Jay Powell. I mean, let me just say that we're, we're taking Friday's comments as gospel. And I, I, I do have to remark there's been a heck of a lot of pivots from Mr. Powell. If, as seems to be happening, inflation is coming down and if, as seems to be happening, the labor market is hanging in there, we might just have that soft landing. And the Fed's mandates are one, price stability, two, maximum employment. There is no third mandate of crush the economy. Those are the two they're searching for. If you get a soft landing, they don't have to crush the economy. Okay, so Jimmy, he's consistent. He's consistent. And uh, we have to respect that until he's he's proven right or wrong. Okay. Mester uh, today takes issue uh, with some of that. Quote, I do not anticipate the Fed cutting the Fed funds target next year. Rates will remain elevated, quote, unquote, for some time. Quote, It is far too soon to say that inflation is peaked, let alone on a sustainable downward path to 2%. Said rates may have to go up uh, by uh, above 4% 
or early next year and stay there for a while. Okay, so I was holding up three fingers because I was going to tell you the three things you need to do to risk manage. But first, okay. let me let me address uh, the economic condition question. Okay, whether or not you believe right now we're in the midst of an economic contraction, there will be one coming. There has to be one coming. Right. That is the only way you can combat inflation. Right. You could say you've got the strongest economy that we've had in the United States in the last hundred years. It doesn't matter. Going forward, the trajectory has to be down. That's the only way that you're able to affect demand and therefore attempt yes. to pull down inflation. Obviously. So, however, there are. However, mm-hmm. it's not a foregone conclusion that you'll have a recession until it is. Right. I think that's Jimmy's argument. That's exactly. is you're that, going yes. to have, you have to have a retraction. So, I mean, unless you so, don't think we do. Yes, yes, I think yes. you would admit that you, you do. Yes. The question is, do you have a soft landing or not? He obviously has his bet in the soft landing camp, and he is investing accordingly. So on overtime yesterday, which I hate doing from my office, I like being on set. That's another story. Okay. Um, I spoke about, we've got ISM manufacturing, we've got non-farm payrolls coming up on Friday. These economic reports are incredibly important. ISM manufacturing is contracting from, to your point, a much higher level than in prior recessions. This is in 82, this isn't 1990, where ISM manufacturing is actually going to go into contraction territory. Mm-hmm. It might actually be expanding. So call it what you want. It's going to be an economic contraction. What are the three things you do to manage risk? Number one, do you have a capital need in the near term? If you have a capital need in the near term, you have to be very aware, you have to be very cautious because the market right now has entered a period where it could go up or down 10%. I don't think anyone has any clarity on that. Second, if you are going to take risk, immediately know where you are wrong. And the last thing, the third thing, and I think this is critical, what's your strategy going to be? Are you going to take out the 2020 or 2021 playbook? Are you going to buy the hyper growth names or... Are you going to fall back upon where we're going to be on the other side of this, where I believe it's going to be a much different market, a market that's going to kind of look like your parents' market? So, Amy Raskin, what do we want to do as we enter a new month, right? August was choppy. Is that just how it's going to be? It's historically not a fabulous month for stocks. There's no guarantees of anything these days. But how, how should we play it? Um, I'm more in Jim's camp. I do think inflation is going to start to come down. I think if you look at leading indicators, they're more negative than the lagging indicators. So employment and inflation are lagging. Most of the leading indicators are pointing to a slowdown. um, And I think that will um, cause the Fed to pause a little bit. And that will be good for markets in general. I'm not wildly bullish by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think we can have a positive closeout to the year. Um, so that, that's where I'm at right now. Hmm. It's interesting, Shannon. I, I feel like there is a I don't know if it's the fact that the Fed at points has terribly damaged its own credibility by the transitory miss. But people don't believe the Fed. I, don't, I mean, Powell comes out. He says it explicitly. Mester comes out and says hawkish explicitly. And Amy Raskin comes back and says, I don't believe it. I don't well, think they're going yeah, to be, they're, they're going to pivot at some point. 
They're going to, jump, to pivot. Can I jump in on that for a second? It's basically uh, what you said. You... Well, it is what I said, but I don't think, I think what the Fed is trying to do with their speech is, is control long-term inflation expectations. And I think they're doing a good job at that. I think that that's their focus is to not let inflation get, get you know, into a cycle where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I do think what, what Powell's focused on, I think what Mester's focused on, what the speeches are focused on is much more, we, we've got this, we're not gonna let this get out of control versus we're gonna do 75 or 50 at the next basis, you know, at the next meeting, or we're gonna you know, do 175, we're gonna get to four before the end of the year. I don't think that's what you should take away from the message. And I think that they have to stay hawkish with their speech because they have to keep long-term inflation expectations under control. Okay. They have to tell everybody, we're not gonna let this get out of control. But I don't think we should, as investors, should interpret that to mean this is what they're gonna do in a couple of weeks. I think you know Jim's point is very right early on. The Fed has sort of pivoted. And again, I don't think that's that's maybe not the right term. When Powell came out and said, you know, 75 basis points is off the table, and then a couple of weeks later he does 75 basis points. I don't again, I think the messaging is more long-term versus the actions that they're going to do in the next few weeks. I okay. don't think the two equate. That's kind of Bahamut El Arian's perspective too. Shannon, and, and maybe we should revisit it and listen to it, right? It's kind of like, forget what they say, watch what they do. Show me. Here's what he said. So the only question I would have is not what the Fed should do, but what will the Fed end up by doing? Because if it flip-flops, that's actually worse for stocks than if it's permitted and gets in the inflation genie back into the bottle. Hmm. So I think the uncertainty around the Fed is actually much higher than what's suggested by the discussion. All right. I mean, we're going to have a Fed meeting and a decision in a few weeks. And I don't know what is priced into the market or what the expectations are or not, but that's going to largely guide where stocks go this month. Can, can I just take a big step back, if, if, if you'd allow me to, Scott? And I, and I think one of the things that I've, t- I've, I've listened to the other three members of the committee, um, and I agree with what a lot of they have to say, but I think it goes back to inflation expectations. Main Street is not reading the Fed statement. Main Street doesn't care how many times Powell has pivoted. Um, and it doesn't care why he's pivoted and that it's based on data. What Main Street is reacting to Look at those consumer confidence numbers that recently came out. Main Street feels like inflation is coming down, that prices are coming down, that things are improving. So if we go back to this notion where we're entering to Joe's point, I agree. We can't go back to 20, 2020 playbook, 2021 playbook. We can't even go back to 2019 playbook. Um, what we need to do, though, is focus on the U.S. consumer because the U.S. consumer is really where we're going to get some driver of growth in 2023. And so the housing market is in a slump. We're seeing consumer confidence starting to improve. And so I think about it in terms of not necessarily parsing out to the extent that we are Powell's pivots, which I do believe have been warranted based on data and the fact that he has maintained his data dependency and the data dependency of the Fed. I think we have to go back to What does it look like when we are in a higher cost environment over the next couple of years? What does that do to profitability? What does that do to earnings? But most importantly, what is it doing on Main Street? 
What are the things that Jim talks about? Manufacturing, reshoring, new opportunities, hiring in areas, in industries we haven't seen hiring in, in decades. I think that we are expecting a recession. We are going to see a contraction. However, if you go back to what is the U.S. consumer going to do, I think that we are seeing already the positive uh, momentum in terms of those lower prices and that consumer demand will not come down as quickly as anticipated, which puts at risk potentially the Fed having to do more, to Joe's point. Okay. All well said. Um, hard to argue with much of it in the near term. Labor market strong, consumer feeling decent as a result. The question is, Powell wants to hit that. He said it. He needs the employment market to weaken. He needs wages to go down. Main Street hasn't seen the value, really, destruction in their home prices. The housing is in a slump. Sales are slumping as expectations of rates go up, but home prices aren't down a ton. I know they dropped, you know, the, the what was it, last month, the, the most since 08. But it's not like housing prices have totally rolled over to the point where consumers are feeling horrible about the value of their homes. Joe, we wrong? Where are we here? No, we're not wrong. And I, and I think to a certain extent, Main Street probably was doing a little bit better in the first half of 2022 than Wall Street was actually doing. Main Street was was feeling some resiliency. They were still out there spending while the wealth effect was being damaged significantly from monetary policy and what was going on between Russia and Ukraine. I think now we're seeing a little bit of a recalibration where Main Street is going to feel the pain, is going to feel the frustration. And maybe Wall Street, to a certain extent, has largely priced in a lot of that. I think what Wall Street has not priced in is if the corporate climate begins to negatively uh, begins to really contract in their earnings profitability. That's not priced in yet. But barring all of that, I think looking forward, it's Main Street that's going to have the problem, not so much Wall Street. Well, here's the thing. I go back and Jimmy alluded to what I said about it's a either don't fight the Fed or don't believe the Fed market. Choose your side. Because you kind of have to be on one side or the other if you look at where you want to be invested in, in a new month. If you don't want to fight the Fed, then do you want to be in tech, which was already down 5.5% in August? If you don't believe the Fed, then maybe you do. You just bought Apple at 161.50. Right. <clears throat> so maybe you don't fully believe what's going to happen to the Fed, because if interest rates go a, a lot higher from here, I've got to believe that the market is going to go lower from here, and then Apple's not a, going to be immune to that. So in the last couple of days, we've heard a lot about long-duration assets. We're, we're using that term again on the network. And I think that people are incorrectly identifying all of technology as a long-duration asset. Um, the components of technology that, in fact, are longer duration assets, and let me be clear what that means for the viewers, it, it really is there's this expectation on profitability that's going to be delivered at some point in the future. It might come. We're promising you, right, that it might come. It's not here. It's not present. Free cash flow generation is, is, isn't here today. Um, those aren't the businesses and technology that I want to be investing in. So I look at Apple. I look at a $90 billion buyback authorization. I look at a new product cycle coming out for iPhone 14. 
I look at a, a company that has outperformed for the entirety of 2022, and I'm a believer in when you reach September, if you've been outperforming year to date, you've got a high, probab- high probability of continuing to do so as you move forward. And this is a company with strong margins. Um, it's exactly strong, strong revenue growth. This is exactly the type of company that I believe in technology want to own. Well, it holds forward. up. It, hold, it may hold up better than most, but if you don't want to fight the Fed and you think they're f- going to fully follow through on what they suggest they're going to do, It'll then work. it's going it, to work? It's, it's worked so far year to date. The Federal Reserve has been more aggressive than I think the street expected at the beginning of the year. They did, the street never expected 275 basis point hikes, and Apple actually held up in that environment. It was resilient. So there is a defensive nature to it. And quite candidly, if Apple's not going to work in, in this scenario you're describing, really either one, then we all have a problem because the market's going Well, along. that's what Mark Newton of Fundstrat suggests, that oh, Apple's I- the key to the market right now in terms of whether it really rolls over or not. You need it to stabilize, right? It was 175. It's at 159 and a half right now. You need, it, you need that decline to stabilize or, or it needs to stop going down for the S&P to find stability in its own right. But Jimmy wants, wants you to buy industrials. He wants our viewers to be invested in industrials. Because he thinks that the economy is going to remain strong enough. In a sense, he does not believe the Fed. He doesn't believe what Mester says. He doesn't yeah, believe that and, and, geez, um, they're going to take rates above 4% and keep them there for a while. He doesn't believe that. Well, yeah, and just to be specific, what I believe, you've heard me say it, is they're going to do 50 basis points in September, 25 and 25. They're going to end up at 3.5% on the Fed funds. Because rate. you don't believe. That's, that's what I'm saying, though. By saying that, you yeah. don't believe what they say. You don't true. believe it. Factually true. You're, you're, you're stating an accurate statement. So you've chosen your side, and thus you want us to buy industrials, down 2.5% in August, yeah. and other areas of the market that are more cyclically sensitive. So here's why, okay? And I'm not going to trigger you. Know, I don't you're not going to trigger discussion. me. Go ahead. All right. All right. But Go ahead. Look, if you believe that you're going to have a growth slowdown, which is the way to say contraction without recession, okay, a growth slowdown, and that you're going to crest into a heck heck of a lot of corporate capex into 2023, which is my thesis, Mm -hmm. then industrials on a fundamental basis are the place to be. Looking at this relative to tech, and nobody listening to me should be saying, okay, I'm just going to buy the XLI. If you're making that move in your portfolio and you don't look at the totality of all of the stocks that I own and see that I do own Apple, albeit at half the market weight, then I think you're kind of hearing what you want to hear. But to the industrials, you know, most of these industrials are mid-teens multiples. I'm not going to get on your case or Apple. I applauded you for that on Monday, but it is. 26 times multiple. Now, I don't care if you make iPhones or earth-moving equipment. What I look at is the quality of the earnings and the growth rate of the earnings. In the thesis that I have, you're going to have a higher growth rate in earnings in a Caterpillar or a John Deere than you will in Apple. Doesn't mean Apple's terrible. Just means that's why so, I am focused. But now let's, let's, let's bring the ladies back in. So, Shannon, about that, that statement, do you agree with that statement? Because it speaks to two you know, large swaths of, of stocks. You're going to have a, a, a higher earnings quality in a caterpillar, so to speak, but you can name a few others if you want as well, than you will in Apple moving forward. And you can name a few other stocks in that universe, if you will, a, a, as well. But you get Jim's point. The question is, is he going to be right or wrong? 
So I like both tech and industrials, Scott, so I'm not going to argue with Jim. We both run diversified portfolios. But I, what I will say is that I still continue to think that from a tailwind perspective in a lower growth environment, it doesn't matter to Joe's point whether we're contracting on the PMI or not. Uh, we are going to be in a slower growth environment. And my view is that uh, big cap tech, free cash flow generating, high profitability, big cap tech, where there's money being earned right now, has the opportunity to potentially grow their earnings at a faster pace than the industrial sector in general. I own some industrials. I own Honeywell. I really like that stock. I think that they can grow their earnings um, above what the sector can do. But I think as a, as a, as a rule, my expectation is, is that they're going to be able to engineer earnings growth better in a slow growth environment than perhaps some more of the cyclical parts of the economy. I could be wrong as well, um, but that is my view and that is where I'm anchoring my portfolio to in order to take advantage of what I do think is going to be a slower growth but not recessionary environment that's going to continue to be supported by positive corporate spend. Okay, Amy, last comment to you, then we break. Yeah, I would take the other side of that. I actually think the large cap tech guys are in for a serious growth slowdown. If you look at the largest contributors to CapEx, um, which has been strong for the first you know, eight months of the year, it's been software and services. We think of those businesses as capital light businesses, but they're investing a lot to try to buy growth. And the cloud is not, it's very capital intensive. So I, I think those multiples are wrong. And I think um, large cap tech is not the place to be um, in general, I would go for the cheaper stocks right now. Last to you. Yeah, I, I, I lied. <laughs> I, I, I think there is this defensive nature in large cap technology, uh, certainly in the mega caps that I think you want to be investing around. In the industrials, I'm sorry, Jimmy, I wouldn't touch an airline. I like agriculture. I am suspicious of construction and machinery, maybe logistics, certainly defense. That's how I play the sector. Okay. Let's do take that break. Up next, crude oil is on pace for its worst month of the year. The committee debates how you should be playing the energy sector in the month ahead. We're back in two minutes on the half. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. 
Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, let's talk about some moves that Amy Raskin is making right now. You trimmed a few stocks, uh, Estee Lauder, Regeneron, and the third one, I don't know that we've discussed before, is it Impinge? Impinge, yes. It's a small cap semiconductor stock, about $2 billion. We like it a lot. Um, It's actually up for the year, which is unusual for semiconductor stocks. It was up a lot, and then it fell and um, got cut in half and came back. So we added to it when it was down, and we're just trimming it because it's a large position. But uh, ultra-high-frequency RFID, um, really well-positioned company for a long term, we think. Um, we have a big position in the stock, and it just got too big with the recent move. Um, Regeneron, we also like a lot, 13 times earnings, um, really good pipeline, was under a lot of pressure, uh, but also outperformed for the year, um, under pressure because of the drug pricing issues. But um, we think that, that has a really strong pipeline, really good science. Um, you're getting it at a very attractive valuation. And Estee Lauder, we trimmed just um, due to the issues in China, obviously a much more expensive stock at over like 36 times. Um, so we just took we we just took some off the table there. OK. Let's uh, do talk about energy now because oil is on pace for its worst month so far this year, down 8% in the month of August. You're bullish, though, Joe, um, right? You own EOG, EQT, Pioneer Natural, Valero. Uh, you've been talking about oil going back up. Crude is at 90 bucks. Again, that gas is on everybody's mind, too. That's basically at 9 bucks uh, right now. Yeah, I, again, in the portfolio and, and, and constructing it, I view it as a hedge. Yeah, if if things are going to go wrong, if Chairman Powell and the Federal Reserve are going to be continuing to raise rates and not be able to combat inflation, the reason is going to be because energy prices remain stubbornly high. So I think you have to carry energy at a little bit more of an overweight than what's in the S&P right now. So approaching 10 percent is the right allocation, I believe. And that's where I'm sitting. We're also moving. Well, approaching 10 percent. All right. So that's so, more than right. Isn't that about double? About, it's about double. double? Yeah, it's about double what the S&P is. So I'm sitting right now at about 10% uh, in terms of a sector waiting to energy. I think that's the right thing to do, just kind of hedging out what can be going wrong here as we move into uh, the fall and as we move into the winter and we're not really able to affect uh, barrels uh, of supply. So, I, you know, this is the third consecutive month that we've seen oil now down. I welcome that, mm-hmm. but... It hasn't done much to improve the overall financial environment, has it? You think energy and tech can go up at the same time? Remember, there was this this point. I I think there's an inverse correlation. I think that's been in effect since the better part of the beginning of July. Uh, I've said that on air. I think a lot of times you have to think about flows of capital. And when energy's going up, we're seeing that there are significant inflows into energy. Where's that coming from? It's coming from technology. Well, when energy moves lower, we saw that a couple of weeks ago. I didn't expect you to answer it that way. Because how can you make a big play on mega cap tech and at the same time then make a big call on energy? If you just said yourself there's an inverse correlation between the two, and that's sort of what I was alluding to, because I don't th- is, is that's not, been proven out in the market. They're not going to work at the same time. I, I said that energy in my portfolio is a hedge. 
it's a hedge against everything going wrong. So if you think about the month of August, right, I was happy to have energy in my portfolio because energy was the one sector that was higher. I think fundamentally everything points towards higher prices for energy. But the real reason it's in the portfolio is because it's hedging against if something goes wrong. So, no, I don't think energy and technology are going to work in concert in my portfolio at the same time. And I think August was indicative of that when energy equities were really, besides utilities, the only sector that were higher. But that's exactly where I was going. Shannon, you own EOG and Valero. Yeah, don't own enough energy, though, for sure, Scott. So, um, you know, I I don't disagree with um, Joe, and we have a pretty uh, hefty technology exposure in our portfolios. So um, we're lighter here in energy. I I think that this is an area that if you have a very constructive view, to to Joe's point, you can get really overweight to the benchmark because the benchmark weighting is really low. Um, I I personally would love to see um, oil come down a little bit from a consumer perspective. Um, I do think that over time, though, for the next several years, we are going to be undersupplied in the energy market. And so if there is some demand destruction here from an energy perspective, and we do see see a sell-off in some of these energy names. Um, it could be an opportunity, um, an increasingly attractive opportunity, to take advantage of the undersupply. I wouldn't do that in a, in a refiner. I mean, I think there's going to be an opportunity to perhaps rotate back to some of the integrateds. Um, right now, I'm looking for that higher beta play to the energy market because I am uh, somewhat underweight. And so that's I've done that through our refiner exposure. But I think there could be an opportunity to rotate back. The other thing that I would say, Scott, is that the over hang um, on the energy sector. The narrative around energy and the need to invest in energy infrastructure has really changed in the last 18 months. I think that's going to continue, and that could be a driver as well in some of the secondary or tertiary industries. Mm. Jimmy, Kinder and Transocean. Um, and Exxon Mobil, which is sort of playing all ends in the middle of the risk spectrum and the beta to oil. Transocean is highly risky, highly risky. Um, but if these day rates continue to go up on oil rigs, it's going to be a, a many multiples of its current share price. That said, upside down balance sheet. So, folks, again, don't go rushing into Transocean. You need to do your homework on this one. Exxon Mobil, yeah. middle of the road. Uh, it's just wherever energy goes in general, you're going to be good. And Kinder Morgan is a steady eddy dividend play. But I want to riff off of what Shannon and Joe have said here. This is a classic short-term versus long-term. Short-term, you've got a few factors going on here. You've got the still lingering COVID shutdowns in China, China demand being low. On the other hand, you want to talk about things not being believed. Clearly, the market does not believe that the European Union will follow through on sanctions that will remove any demand for Russian oil barrels uh, at the end of the year. It just clearly doesn't believe that. Because if that comes to play, the stark supply-demand imbalance is going to push energy prices probably back up to the highs of February. Okay. We'll take a quick break. Stay with us. Mike Santoli joins us next with his midday word. We're right back. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
I'm Seema Modi, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. United Nations inspectors have arrived in the Ukrainian town near the huge nuclear power plant held by Russian troops. The mission seeks to make sure the plant is operating safely. Now, a top Ukrainian official says the mission is also a step towards removing soldiers from the site. U.S. life expectancy fell by nearly a year during 2021. The decline is mostly due to COVID, but drug overdoses, heart disease, and other conditions also playing a part. In the first two years of the pandemic, life expectancy dropped by nearly three years. That's the biggest such drop since the height of the World War II. An American born last year can expect to live to be 76 years old. The last time it was that low was 1996. And it was 25 years ago today that England's princess Diana died in a car crash. Memorials had been set up near the site of the accident in Paris and outside her former home at Kensington Palace in London. At the time of her death, she was one of the world's most recognized women and a high-profile supporter of humanitarian causes. Scott, I'll send it back to you. Okay, Seema, thank you. Seema Modi. All right, welcome back to the Halftime Report. Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli is with us now from the New York Stock Exchange for his midday words. Good to see you as always. New month, same questions. That's the story. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Definitely the market held in check by the known unknowns of September, not just the seasonal patterns, which, you know, have tended to be worse when the market's in a downturn. But on the other hand, in midterm election years, you'll you'll hear some say not necessarily as bad. Uh, Clearly, CPI, Fed meeting. I do wonder how much fresh negative information we have there if, in fact, we're already leaning toward uh, a three-quarter percent rate increase in three weeks from, uh, from the Fed. One thing you'll note uh, in the last couple of weeks as the market has had this slide is it's starting to look a little more oversold, not as washed out as we were in June. But if you look internally at some of the, the breath measures and, and how many stocks are, are a little bit stretched to the downside, you might get there before the indexes themselves have to really uh, approach the June lows if, if we continue to trade very heavily. It is amazing the effort that some Fed officials are making uh, to get people to hear their message, right? It's uh, Kashkari the other day, Uber Dove Kashkari yeah. talking about, hey, I, I liked the reaction in the market post Powell. And you got Mester today, right? Rates are going to be basically higher for longer is kind of her, her point of view. The question is, will investors as a whole believe it or not? You know, I, I think we believe it. I think investors believe it intellectually. They get it. But what you can handicap is the world actually evolves and circumstances change. And you, you constantly see that it's a dynamic process. It's not today on August 31st, we set the path for the next year and the Fed knows what it is and they're going to follow through with it. We know that inflation can come down hard potentially uh, and, and change the, uh, the equation. So I, I get that we're hearing it. I don't think that people are being complacent about what the Fed intends for the markets and trying to tighten financial conditions. But it's also just not the only uh, variable that we have to pay attention no, to. No, I hear you, but there's still a belief among, you know, a good amount of people that think the Fed's going to have to cut rates next year, whereas Mester says, I do not anticipate the Fed cutting the Fed funds rate target yeah. next year. Uh, so you, you're going to have this battle uh, over the better part of, of this upcoming month. We'll, we'll hear from Powell again in a few weeks. We will. But you know what? The Fed will never say whatever we're doing now, we're going to undo it a little bit within a year's time. Uh, And also, the markets are not really pricing in a rate cutting campaign next year after rates peak. It's basically a higher for longer scenario within the rates market. Yeah, they might have one uh, cut priced in by the end of next year. But the Fed futures, Fed funds futures market is not really very clear that far out in advance anyway. All right. I'll see you in a few. That's Mike Santoli. 
Join me later in overtime for his last words. Straight ahead, an upgrade for PayPal, pushing those shares higher. It's our call of the day. We'll find out what the committee thinks now about fintech. Boy, much maligned fintech. We'll do that next. There's a bullish call out on PayPal today. The stock got upgraded to buy at Bank of America. They expect activist investor Elliott Management to push for more cost cuts. We've made it our call of the day. Amy Raskin, I feel like this stock, man, I feel like it's gone from love to loathed. Nobody here owns it today. And the yeah. valuations come way down. I mean, the, the analyst who made this call was on, uh, I think it was Tech Check before us pointed out the stock is now trading at a 12% premium to the overall market. It has been at 75% at times. That gives you an idea of how the multiple has come way down. Why not attractive now? Yeah, we've never really loved the fintech sector. Actually, we've never really been there. Um, you know, My view very much is that the credit card business is very much a duopoly and that consumers don't really want to pay to pay. So people don't really like fees associated with payments. So they, they expect it to be free. There's a lot of competition in the space. There was a lot of capital that was put into this space. So we just don't see the longer term profitability opportunities there. Um, so, so we're not there and we've honestly never been there. So we yeah. missed the ride up and we're missing the ride down. I know you own Visa, as, as do you, yeah. Shannon. And I, it's the same question, really. Um, if not now, when? Well, Scott, um, we actually owned PayPal last year, and we only owned it for about six months, which for us is a really short holding period. Um, we were looking at, you know, we had lost about almost 20% on the stock already when we sold it last year. It's down another 55% since we bought it, or since we sold it, excuse me. And I think the problem is, is you're seeing slower growth rates. And I do think that there's an opportunity um, for additional monetization for PayPal, but I think they have to get their costs right in terms of the average revenue per user that they're generating versus cost spend. And so I think that this upgrade, although it might be a little bit too early for us to go back into the space because we do think the payment space, to Amy's point, is incredibly competitive, um, you're starting to see the stock down to a valuation where if you can bring costs in and you can start to focus on that revenue per user rather than net ads, mm -hmm. um, this could be an opportunity in the uh, next couple of years. Jimmy, you're emblematic of love to loathe, right? You owned it. Now you don't. You own Visa instead. Why? I, and maybe I'll go love to neutral. Uh, I, I mean, I don't, because I, I honestly don't <laughs> hate it, but I think the problem and why I'm neutral is I really don't know what I'm rooting for in PayPal. Um, this was a stock, as you pointed out and the analyst pointed out, that was trading at a 50 times multiple. Now it's at a 20 times multiple. Is it cheap enough? Maybe. But what if we're actually getting a turnover from growth investors, which it was, to value investors that are reflecting the change in strategy that management went through a year ago, where it, was, it went from growth at any cost to quality growth? I, I, I think you've got a long time in the penalty boxes that shareholder turnover turns over. In the meantime, I know what I've got in Visa. I know what I'm rooting for there. I'm rooting for a pickup, a continuing pickup in international travel, uh, which increases their tra uh, cross-border transactions. That's their growth area. Uh, and I see it continuing. Potentially something has changed here at PayPal. Maybe it's on the encouragement of Elliott Management. But the new CFO, Blake Jorgensen, is someone who was at Electronic Arts and utilized buybacks aggressively when he came to the uh, Electronic Arts in 2012 through 2013 through 2014. It worked. He's going to use the same strategy here. 
PayPal has already announced the $15 billion addition to the 2022 current authorization that has $2.8 billion left on it. Let's remember that this is a company that in the last three years has only bought back $9 billion worth of their stock. So new CFO that's going to prioritize a buyback strategy. If you are going to own this name, the reason to do so is solely predicated on the belief that they're going to return capital to shareholders. All right, coming up. A big change for activist investors that could give them an edge. We're following that money next. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. Activist investor fights may be about to heat up. Our Leslie Picker following the money, telling us why. Uh, This is really interesting, Les. What can you tell us? Hey, Scott. Yeah, it could mean uh, busier times ahead for you and me. Uh, it's a somewhat technical rule, uh, rule change that takes effect tomorrow. It's expected to have very big implications for the world of activism. It involves something called the universal proxy card. In battles over the board, this will allow investors to vote on any mix of their preferred director candidates. Previously, investors selected either the management's slate or the dissident slate. Sidley Austin's Kai Likafed, who co-leads the firm's corporate defense practice, says the new voting dynamic gives activists more leverage. The universal proxy is a true game changer for corporate America. Activists were popping champagne when the rule was adopted. This is not good for corporate America. This is the most impactful rule change for proxy fights in a generation. Experts say that vote splitting increases the chance that activists win, say, a seat or two in a campaign where under the old system they may have lost entirely. This may make settlements harder to come by, increasing the likelihood of costlier proxy fights, and we may see more personal attacks against specific directors. The SEC says that the rule change puts proxy voters on equal footing with the small minority of investors who actually attended meetings in person where they can vote for the preferred mix of candidates. Chair Gary Gensler has said, quote, this is an important aspect of shareholder democracy. Scott. I heard you, I think it was you and David discussing earlier whether, you know, one or two people, if they win a vote, mm-hmm. would make a difference on a board. I suppose at the end of the day, uh, you know, a couple of voices in the room uh, for an activist are better than none. That's right. I mean, well, for an activist, they can go back to their limited partners. They can go back to their investors and they can say, you know, we got we have influence in the boardroom now, whereas previously they may have had none. And so for them, it's important from a a marketing and business operations standpoint. But depending on the people that they actually get in the boardroom, they could have some significant influence in persuading the rest of the board to go about the strategic changes that they want to make to spin off a division, to engage in some other sort of M&A, uh, you know, the usual types of things that activists push for. It just depends on kind of the situation. But by and large, even though it's a minority of the board, could still have a, a significant influence on corporate America. Yeah, depending, of course, as you said, on who it is. Les, thank you. That's Leslie Picker joining us there. Coming up, two stocks hitting new lows that our investment committee members own. One of them is a Dow stock. It's down more than 20% or near than 20, near 20% this year. The trades are coming up next.
number of stocks hitting new 52-week lows today, including some that the investment committee owns. Verizon, lowest level now since 2015. Amy Raskin, you own it. Let's take that one first. Yeah, this has been a really disappointing stock. This is a year that Verizon should be working, and it's not. It's down a little bit more than the market, but it should have held up much better. Um, It's trading now at eight times earnings, which just seems really low with a 6% yield. Um, I would have thought 5G would have helped it more. Obviously, just the the entire space and the comm services space has been getting crushed. Um, But this has been really disappointing. I keep looking at it thinking, I should add to it and I keep waiting and that's been the right move at some point. If it doesn't turn soon, I will add just sort of as a relative value play, but um, really disappointing. And Trex hitting its lowest level since May of 2020, Shan. Yeah, housing adjacent stocks are just a tough place to be, and I've got a few in our portfolio. Um, you know, Trex is, is obviously, uh, you know, makes composite decking um, certainly a higher cost uh, outlay for decking than lumber now that lumber prices have come back to normal from their sky-high levels of last year. Um, and so they, they, they warned on lower capex for the second half of the year based on inventory demand that was declining. Um, I do think longer term, uh, this is certainly a growth driver um, within the housing adjacent space, and we're going to hold on to it. We already added to it once this year, however, um, and so we're probably going to sit back and make sure that we see a normalization of these inventories, particularly in the pro channel as we move into 2023 before before we add to it again. What do you make, Joe, of this CrowdStrike decline today of some 7%? It's one of the bigger losers today out of the 100. I think the expectations were high for the stock going into the print. Uh, the guidance was better. The free cash flow uh, margins were better. Uh, but I don't think there was enough there to carry forward uh, positive momentum, certainly in an environment where the overall tape has been on the retreat the last couple of days. I'm, I'm holding the position because I still believe in the story long term. Where do we think it's going from here? You think it's going to go, you know, markedly lower or not? Better, well, more- Regardless of whether you're holding it or not. Yeah, better. better. I think it's unfortunately now becomes somewhat hostage to mm. the overall tape itself. Okay. But, you know, better market. It goes above 200. All right. We uh, take a quick break. Come back to final trades next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. See everybody at 4 o'clock today in overtime. Josh Brown's with me along with Liz Young. Rick Heitzman's with us on Snap. There's news today and, of course, some other tech plays there. Gabriela Santos. She spoke with us pre-PAL, so she's coming back post to tell us what she thinks of stocks now that the Fed share has spoken. See all of you in a few hours from now. Let's do final trades. Amy Raskin, you're first. Sure. Um, this is not for the faint of heart, but Illumina, um, really good company. It's fun. had a terrible year. It has a few catalysts coming up, a genomics forum at the end of the month, and then an analyst day in early October. You're also going to get a decision on Grail. If the EU prevents the acquisition from happening, they're going to spin it out. And I think that's going to be a big catalyst for the stock. Okay. Thank you. Shan? Rockwell Automation, focusing on uh, industrial automation with this reshoring trend that we've been talking about. Okay. Joey? Hershey, all-time high last week. More to come. All right. The good farmer. Farmer Uh, CVS, easy to own healthcare stock. Okay. Uh, Thank you very much. Good seeing everybody today. I'll see everybody in overtime in just a few hours from now. The exchange begins right now. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.